0: Luke um, chapter 19 and beginning at verse 28. Or twenty eight, yeah, verse twenty-eight. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he leaves Jericho, right? And now he's headed up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. Saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And we'll stop there for right now. So we're going to break this into a couple of sections, what I just read. Verses 29 or verses 28 through 36, 29 through 36. We see that Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, and he comes to these two towns, Bethphage and Bethany. These are towns that are right there uh, by the Mount of Olives. It's very close to Jerusalem. He's made his way up into Jerusalem, um, but he is on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley, the opposite side of Jerusalem, and this is where he is. He's going to have a meal um, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. This is where she's going to anoint his feet with the costly Um, spikenard oil, and um, Judas is going to rebuke her. He says, but, you know, she's done this for my burial. And so this is what happens in, in that scene. Now, we don't get any of those details in Luke's account, but that's what's going on in this general area. And what we notice is that Jesus is going out of his way to do something. And it's, it's going out of his way to actually fulfill a prophecy and to draw attention and not stop people from declaring who he is. Um, I'm sure as you've read the Gospels before, you have noticed the Lord said, don't tell anyone. Some call this the messianic secret. There came a time when the Lord wanted it to be revealed. He wanted to freely move about. He didn't want to be controlled by the, uh, you know, the excitement of a crowd. He wanted to be led by the spirit to go from town to town and and, and minister. And the thing that just stands out to me as they even make that statement, um, if you've ever been to Israel, you um, there's this one spot there in the Sea of Galilee uh, that kind of overlooks Jesus's, the majority of Jesus' ministry. And it's up on Mount Arbel. And as you look down, you just are able to see the Sea of Galilee and all these little, you know, modern, of course, uh, towns dotting uh, the shoreline. But, you know, you you rewind this 2,000 years and they're just little villages. The King of Kings, the creator of the universe, came to this little village place. This little area. And what he wanted to do was, when the crowds got big, he wanted to go to this next small little village. Such an interesting thing about the Lord. its just He just wanted to touch a handful. And, and of course, he ended up touching the world. I mean, he knew what the Lord was doing. But it's just always amazing to me. It's like, wow, you came here. You didn't go to Rome. You know, you didn't go to these major cities. You, you went to these little towns. In your country, and so he's telling them to be quiet as he goes along. If we were here on Sunday night, as we read through Mark, um, you heard this happen a couple of times. He says, "Don't tell anybody." But now, here, right here, right before he's about to be crucified, and that is where we are. We're in the you know coming up on the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. He is going out of his way to tell his disciples to do something that he knows full well is going to draw the attention of everybody, and so. He tells him to go and get this uh, colt, this, this donkey, and bring it to him. Why? Well, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he comes in fulfillment of this prophecy some 550 years earlier, that Zechariah wrote about the Messiah when he would come into Jerusalem and that he would come with salvation and he would come riding on a donkey. Your king is coming and this is the day. It's a triumphal entry. And as he comes in, um, quite a stir begins to take place. Now, one thing about riding on a donkey is um, this was a, a statement of of humility, this was a statement of peace. I'm coming, um, I have no harm intended. When Jesus comes a second time, is he coming riding on a donkey? No, he's coming riding on a, on a white horse, which is a statement of power and a statement of watch out. But he comes here to bring peace, he comes to, to show kindness. And it was a statement that was well, they were well acquainted with. In that day, but when Jesus comes back a second time, He's not coming on a donkey. Um, you might want to read Zechariah 9:9 and on, and you will see in that passage that Zechariah 9:9 is clearly talking about the first coming, right? But then, as you go on, you begin to read about Zechariah talking about things that are going to happen. And how there's going to be peace. And how there's going to be, um, the Lord is going to, you know, by force, make the nations come. And they're going to bow. And there's going to, be a, there's going to be this triumph that takes place over the nations. But that doesn't happen in his first coming. It's going to happen in his second coming. But if you've ever wondered, why did they always think that he was going to set up his kingdom? For a good reason. Because a prophet spoke of it. And he still is going to set up his kingdom. But that will be at his second coming. In verses 37 and 38, the crowd rejoices at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're excited. Um, his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works. Um, and, and so they're, they're making noise. They're making a big deal. They have seen the Lord do so many things. They're wondering, is this the moment? Is this the moment that he's going to throw off Rome and he's going to get rid of these, you know, you know, loser for, uh, you know, leaders that they have. And is he going to establish a righteous rule? They're excited for what they see. And I think they're excited for what he may do. Now in Matthew 21 10, actually, do we put that picture up? Can we put the picture up if we have that? Yeah. So this is the descent that goes from the Mount of Olives And it goes down into, um, well, down below is the Kidron Valley. And then as you go back up, you go up into the Temple Mount. And the picture's kind of a little hazy, but if you go down, you can see the trees kind of in the the background. And as you go on up, there is the Temple Mount. So Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley. As he gets down to the Kidron Valley, this is the place, this is the Garden of Gethsemane area. Then you have the Kidron Valley, and you take a short walk. I mean, it's a short walk. So this kind of gives you, shows you how compact things are. But he's coming down the descent of the Mount of Olives. And the, everybody's just kind of, they're around. They're watching what's going on. Now, Matthew 21.10 gives us an interesting statement. He says, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Okay, so this is what's going on. Not all the city is saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The multitude of his disciples are saying that. But as Matthew says, the entire city is moved saying, what's going on? So now we know what the city is going to say in just a few short days. What are they going to say? Crucify him. That's right. So they are moved. In other words, this is not happening in a corner. Everybody. The city is moved. Well, when we say the city is moved, how many people are we talking about? Well, what feast is going on right now? It's the feast of Passover. One of the major feasts in Israel's uh, calendar. Celebrating their exodus from Egypt. And Josephus estimates that about this time, there are two hundred and fifty. Uh, 256,500 sheep that were sacrificed during Passover and reckoning 10 people to a lamb. You could have as much as 2.7 worshipers. Now, some historians will say this is an exaggeration of numbers. Okay, I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's not. But you get an idea. There's a lot of people here. So maybe it's not 2.7, but it's a lot of people. This city is jam-packed. They they can't hardly find, you know, room so full. If you were traveling in, it would be difficult. And so the whole city's like, what is going on? The Pharisees are rebuking. The disciples are rejoicing. And Jesus is having a conversation while writing down that descent into Jerusalem. They were saying the right things. Their chants were taken from Psalm 118. It's a clear reference to the coming of the Messiah. But the leaders are troubled, aren't they, about the crowd's expression. You know, rebuke your disciples. And he says, well, let me tell you. If my disciples are going to be quiet, you're going to have to deal with another group of people. Or another group that's going to be saying something. And it's the stones are going to be crying out. And he says they will immediately cry out. This day is clearly a special day in prophetic history. We see the Zechariah uh, 9 passage, and we're going to see in just a moment the uh, Daniel 9 passage. As you keep on reading, um, in 39 through 42, he says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out, Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, that's some powerful words right there. This was a special day. This was a day that he expected they should have been aware of and they should have been ready for. And yet, they were not. He says, The things that make for your peace, I've come on a donkey. I've come with salvation to bring peace. But now, so peace is not yours. And what you should have known, well, now they are hidden from your eyes. You're no longer going to understand. You're no longer going to see what you were meant to see. They had blind leaders that had blinded the multitude. And Daniel speaks of this event and this blindness me. Daniel speaks of this event and this very special day some 483 years earlier. This day. Not, not just any day, but 483 years earlier to the day Daniel had said that the Messiah would come. And that's why Jesus says, if you had known. You, you should have known. Even you, especially in this your day. This was a day that was spoken to you and you were not aware of it. What is the point of prophecy? Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He tells us was going to happen before it happens. That we might know that there is no God like him. Prophecy makes up two-thirds of your Bible. And it's there to tell us that God is the author. He's the one behind this book that we are reading. He is the one that's letting, letting us know. He's giving us proof that the events that are happening are not... Simply any event, he said ahead of time, these are the things that will take place. And we can look at those prophetic passages. And there are so many of them and say, wow, look at how the Lord has spoken to us. And it should build our faith. It should build our faith in the book that we read. It should encourage us to get in and study prophecy and to understand it. And so the Lord speaks to us through prophecy that we might know that he is God. And so prophecy is such an important thing. Let's, let's talk about Daniel's prophecy a little bit that speaks of this moment when Jesus would come in on the triumphal entry, riding on the donkey, as Zechariah had said. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. You turn there, and we'll have some verses that pop up as well, but turn to Daniel 9, and we're going to read verses 23, and we'll, we'll get them as they come. Well, We'll read a few of those verses and, and talk about this. But the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel gives us specific details about this day that we are all familiar with. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. This is the event that we're talking about. And in, that, in this chapter, in these verses we're going to look at, God outlines the prophetic history of Israel. Or if you will, he gives them a prophetic time clock that starts on 1 and ends on 70. It's not 1 through 12, it's 1 through 70. And he's going to tell them when that clock is going to begin ticking. He's going to tell them at what time another event is going to happen, and then another event. And I think in all, you could probably look at five or six events, depending on how you want to break up the passage. But look at verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, and the the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. That's a command. The command is to understand the vision. The command is not, here's some things that are you know, maybe a little difficult for you to understand. If you get them, great. If you don't have time to worry, you know, dig in, don't worry. No, he says, Daniel, you've got to understand these things. And so I think when you find the Lord giving a commandment that says, understand these things, you're usually going to have to spend some time pondering it. You're going to have to work at it. And, and so if you've never heard a study on Daniel chapter 9, just put your seatbelt on. Don't glaze over. You know, pinch yourself. Wake up. God says, understand this. So that's, that's the first thing that I want us to see. Um, in verse 24, 70 weeks... Are determined for your people. Who's his people? Israel. And for your holy city, what's the holy city? To finish a transgression. That's that's a significant thing. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. What do you think? Has this happened yet? I don't think that's happened yet. To seal up vision and prophecy? That's certainly not happening. To anoint the most holy? actually crucified him. So th- this is a prophecy that still is unfulfilled in part. So this is, he says, what's going to happen. There are 70 weeks that are tr- determined. What is meant by 70 weeks of prophecy? Well, the word for weeks here is the Hebrew word shabuah. And it means a period of seven or a unit of seven. Seven days. Seven weeks, seven months, seven years. It is a period of seven. And context will determine whether it's a, a day, a week, a month, or a year. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, whereas we go through this, we're going to see this is representative of years. So there are 70 seven year units, it's 490 years. So he says, this is, this is it. There are 490 years are determined for your people and your holy city. That, that's pretty specific, don't you think? I mean, this is not kind of gray, you know, rough around the edges, can't really figure. No, 490 years are determined for your people. And we're going to see that 483 years of these 490 years of prophecy... Have been fulfilled, and there only is one remaining seven year period left for the nation of Israel and for the holy city. So, this prophetic clock uh, we're going to be told when it will begin ticking and when it is going to stop or when it will be sealed, when prophecy will be done. So, in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command. So here's what it's going to begin. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So he breaks it up. There's 70 weeks in total, but he's going to talk about seven weeks, 49 years. He's going to talk about 62 weeks. He's going to talk about um, 70 weeks altogether. And then he goes on to say, The street shall be built again, and the wall even and troublesome times. So Daniel is giving this prophecy. The prophetic time clock starts ticking when the command is given to restore and build. So Daniel is living at a time in exile in Babylon where the walls and and um, and all have been destroyed. The city's been destroyed. There's no temple yet. It's all been it's just been raised. It's just been burned, it is in non it's not existing. And he's saying, But this is gonna something's gonna happen. When there's a command, when a, when a decree goes forth to rebuild, that's when the clock of your 490 years is going to begin to tick. And it's going to, there's going to go all the way up to 69. If you had the seven, seven, unit, uh, seven, seven year unit and the seven, uh, 62 seven year uh, unit, you're going to end up with 69, right? So seven plus 62 is 69. But there's going to, something that's going to happen significantly after seven years and then something else is going to happen after the next 62, um, seven-year period. So that's what he's saying. So it begins to to, uh, move when the decree is given. So there are three decrees um, that you can find that are put up for debate. And I am not going to take the time to go through them all. Um, I will say this. If you want to follow the dates... Of like this passage, or like the life of Christ, does, does anybody ever just like make all the, their charts on the Passion Week to try and figure out what's happening and what the dates were? Or if you if you are like that, or if you want to dig in more, I'm going to give you the name of a book to, to pick up. It's, the, it's called "The Chronological Aspects of the of the Life of Christ" by Harold Honer, and. Um, yeah, it's not like exhilarating reading, but it gives you the information if you're digging in. I it's um, I find it interesting, um, and I think you will as well. Um, so he goes through these different options, and I'm just going to give you the, the one that I believe is the option. And it's found in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. You can turn there if you want in Nehemiah chapter 2, and he's just going to state it pretty clearly of, of what is about to take place. And When you get there, he's going to talk about in the the 20th year of of the king, Artaxerxes. And he's going to talk about this rebuilding of the city. And, of course, we know that Nehemiah's big project was to rebuild the walls, right? And so there are other decrees that are given that talks about, um, in the book of Ezra, they talk about the rebuilding of the temple, But when he arrives, the temple's done, and he's concerned about the wall. So they put their attention on the spiritual aspect, right? The temple first, and those other decrees. But this decree is a decree um, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And that would put us at 445 to 444 B.C. That would have been his first year. So he he ascended to the throne Um, you know, partway through 445 and into 444 BC. Um, I'm just going to let you know that there are people that will take 445 BC and they will use this as the starting date and some will take the 444 BC. Um, And good godly people will hold to either view. Clearly, we're looking back 2,000 years after the event was fulfilled and, you know, and even longer when, when Daniel wrote this and when Nehemiah was um, receiving the permission to go restore and, and rebuild Jerusalem. So they knew these things specifically, and Jesus expected that they should have known. Um, and and so it could be a year here or there, but you do run into complications with calendars and what day does Friday fall on and what day is the new moon and all the rest that pertain to when Jesus would have, when Passover would have began. So I'm going to give you the date of March 5th, 444 B.C. March 5th, why that? It's the first day of the new moon. It's the first day of the new moon, um, and it correlates to our calendar as March 5th, 444 B.C., uh, or the first of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. That's when it begins. So there's your first date. You know, the clock's ticking on March 5th, 444 B.C., and from that time period, you can count ahead and you can begin to look at some of the other events that are going to go on. Um, the decree comes in Nehemiah chapter 2. And then he says, after seven, seven year periods, or after 49 years, um, something's going to happen. And what's going to happen is his project will basically be done. Of course, we knew he rebuilt the walls, but the city had to be cleaned up and, and all the rest. So 49 years um, after this time, the, the streets and the walls were completed. And then he says, and 62 weeks. So we're still in Daniel 9, 25. And 62 weeks are 62 seven-year periods so if you if you count these together, the seven, 49 years and then the the, the seven sixty two seven year periods, it's a total of four hundred and eighty three years. And he says, there shall be seven weeks, things are going to be built. Um, in sixty two weeks, the streets will be built again, even in troublesome times. And so the Messiah is going to be is going to come. Um, and he, this is what's going to take place after those four hundred and eighty three years. So It begins March 5th, 444 B.C., 49 years later. um, You have the project essentially being done. And then 483 years later, the Messiah comes. And that's what we just read. We just read about that. I'll give you more details as we move on. But then um, after that, if we keep on reading into uh, verse of, of Daniel 9. Let me get back there. In Daniel 9, verse 26, it says, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So 62 weeks come. He comes on the scene. He is uh, riding into Jerusalem. But after that, he's cut off. And indeed, he was cut off, he was crucified. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So that's that last seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring in an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummations which is determined is poured out on the desolate or on the desolator. So the Antichrist is the one who's going to commit the abomination of desolation and that last week he is going to be destroyed. He is the desolator that's going to be taken and dealt with. So this passage, I mean, it talks to us about the beginning of the decree. It talks about the walls being completed. It talks about Jesus coming into uh, Jerusalem, riding on the donkey as Zacharias said he would. It, It tells us about how there's going to be an abomination of desolation that's going to take place that there is going to be a seven year treaty and that the one who uh, <clears throat> commits or makes this treaty we know is going to be the antichrist we will get that in the next couple of weeks and then he's going to be destroyed that brings us to the end of the of this uh, you know or com- brings us to the second coming of christ which is the end of the la- the seven year period called the tribulation and there's your 490 years And so when you begin to look at this and break it down, you just begin to be amazed at the accuracy with which he gives us this information. So Daniel amazingly predicts 69 weeks or 483 years after Artaxerxes' decrees to rebuild Jerusalem in troublesome times, think of Sam Tobiah, what day Jesus would come. Into Jerusalem. And so, how do we count this? How do you count 483 years? You're using different calendars. Well, the one thing that seems to be obvious as you go through this is that Daniel is working off of a 360 day calendar. And I'm not gonna go into it, um, but there is all kinds of evidence in Scripture when prophecies talking using a 360 day calendar. You just got to take my word for it or go read that book or I'll, I'll give you some references to it afterwards. So if you take the 483 years and you times that by 360 days, this is 173,880 days from Nehemiah chapter 2 when that decree is given. When you count ahead, this brings you to March 30th, thirty-three. A.D. And if you begin to look at the, when Jesus was crucified, there are all kinds of dates. In that book, he goes through them all. And he, I think he does a fantastic job of, of breaking things down, using history, using scripture, using the um, astronomy and the ancient calendars. And I, it just makes a solid case for this, being March 30th, thirty three. This is the triumphal entry day, which, according to his accounting, doesn't make it Palm Sunday, it makes it Palm Monday. Um, So you have to work through that and all your emotional feelings connected with the Palm Sunday. But a Monday, and then a few days later, he's crucified on that Friday, and Jesus' life comes to an end. 173,880 days before Jesus comes on that donkey into town, Daniel said he's coming. And Jesus said, you should have known. You should have known this day, this day that was meant for your peace. I hold you accountable. And and so it's not something like that, you, you know, you should have just figured out. No, you should have known this. And now because it was given to you and you didn't know, now these things are going to be hidden from your eyes. And you look at the last 2,000 years of history, and while we rejoice with every Jew who comes to faith, and there are many and there are, that are coming to faith, you know, especially in the last you know, 20, 30 years, or coming to faith in Jesus and seeing him as their Messiah we rejoice over all that and we would witness to anyone as a nation they have rejected him for 2,000 years and they still have that stance as a nation this is why Paul writes in in Romans chapter 11 how that there is a blindness that has come over Israel and he says and that blindness is going to be there until the Times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so we live in the church age right now. So you have 483 years, 173,880 days that ran, that clock was ticking. It did not stop beginning on March 5th, 444 B.C. And it ran consecutively all the way until the Messiah was cut off. And Jesus said, now it's hidden from your eyes. And so... There will come a time when the Lord will begin to work among the nation of Israel um, in a profound way. He's still working, but not in the ways in which you know, Daniel was speaking. But that clock will start again when it's their last seven years, 490 years total. There's only one seven-year period that's left for them. Can anybody think in Scripture of a time of seven years that the Bible talks about that is yet future? The Great Tribulation in the book of Revelation. And when you read through that, it is all about God waking up the nation and preserving the nation and judging the nations that come against Israel. So once this church age period is done with, that is made up of Jews and Gentiles that believe in Jesus, once that period is done with, that clock will begin... And seven years will run off fulfilling the 490 years. And Jesus will be coming back on that, not a donkey, on a white horse into Jerusalem again. And he will be recognized as the king. As a matter of fact, there's a passage that says, You will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All Israel is going to have to do is say, You're our king. Hosanna. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as soon as a nation calls out, the Lord will return at his second coming. But we know what's going to happen prior to that. And you can read in Revelation 6-19 through and you can find out what that scene is going to be like. So since this moment of the triumphal entry, the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened a few days later, shortly after that, the church began on the day of Pentecost and God has been working and a blindness has come over the nation. But that blindness will not last forever. And those who say, well, God's done with the nation of Israel, they fail to understand this prophecy. They fail to read Romans chapter 11. Inexcusable, in my opinion. It is so crystal clear that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He says, don't, even, don't be wise in your own opinion. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. And that is that God's not done with Israel. All Israel is going to be saved. Not because they're Israel, but because they put faith in their Messiah. It's when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then those, that'd be that last seven year period. And so this event that is so special and Jesus brings attention to is special because Daniel said it, it was a day that was meant to be, read Zechariah 9, 9 and on and find out what the Lord really wanted to do. Things that were intended for their peace. But now, not so much. Now they're hidden from your eyes. You can find out what the Lord's heart was, but now we see there's a first and second coming. So, yeah, I want to do this. I'm going to run through something one more time because I realize it is such a lot of information. So we have a couple of slides that we're going to go through that reviews what we just talked about. So in the first slide, uh, the word weeks is a Hebrew word, shabuah, and it refers to... Seven, a period of seven days or years. Shabuah in this instance is easily proven to be a period of seven years. Seventy times seven is 490 years determined for Israel's entire prophetic history. Next slide. These weeks of prophecies can be called Israel's prophetic time clock. The clock began on March 5th, 444 B.C. Nehemiah chapter two, the decree is given to Israel to build, 490 years after this event marks the fulfillment of God's prophecies to Israel. The second coming will have happened. Prior to the fulfillment of these 490 years, two events are mentioned fulfilling only 483 years. There's seven weeks. The wall and the city are done, 49 years. After 62 weeks or 483 years, uh, the Messiah will come. The next slide. From the decree to rebuild uh, to the coming of the Messiah, 173,880 days are a part of that, that period of time. So 69 years times 360 days gives you that uh, total. This is based on the lunar calendar of 360 days per year. If we put that into our Julian calendar, it's March 30th, 33 AD, the triumphal entry. When Jesus came in and Jesus said, you should have known about this special day. The next slide, March 30th, 33 AD, Jesus is recognized as their king in Luke 19. The clock stops ticking with Israel's rejection. Now it's hidden from your eyes. This rejection is the current church age we live in right now. There remains one seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. And then there's a little timeline. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it. But it just kind of basically goes through everything I just said, but more in a timeline um, uh, fashion. So, um, the Lord tells us what's going to happen before it happens so that we can know that He is God and that His Word is trustworthy. Study the Word of God. Know it and understand it. If you're like, I have never heard anything like this in my entire life, my mind is blown. Okay, well, let me do... One more summary. About 500 years before Jesus wrote into Jerusalem, God said it was going to happen. So, if that one was all that was over your head, there it is. This is the takeaway. The special day was Daniel said it was going to happen 500 years beforehand. You should have known. And now I wanted to bring peace. There is no peace. I wanted you to know and to see, but now these things are hidden from your eyes. Moving back into Luke 19, verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is why Jesus came. He came to the nation to bring them peace. Luke 177 says, To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our Lord, With which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus came for peace. They rejected him. The prince of peace. The nation. And so they have to deal with the consequences of that. But so does every individual. Jesus didn't come just for peace for the nation of Israel. He has come for peace for you. That the enmity that exists between you and God, that makes your lives so tumultuous, so unsettled, so unfulfilled, he came to bring peace. And he took the punishment in his body on the cross for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of the world. So there might be peace between us and the Father. This is what he has done. And we are blessed to have that. In verses 43 through 44, he speaks of Israel's coming destruction. It meant for peace, now it's hidden from your eyes. Now verse 43, "For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you." It's a pretty graphic description. And your children within you, to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I mean, underline that. Very specific. You should have known, but you didn't know. What is he talking about? Well, if this is 33 AD, and just a few years later... um, 33 years later, there's going to be an uprising that's going to take place in the nation of Israel in 66 A.D. It will come to its conclusion in 70 A.D. when Rome completely destroys Israel. Here's a little bit of the history. In 66 A.D., Roman, the Roman general Vespasian, who later becomes the emperor of Rome, is sent into Jerusalem prior to being the emperor, is sent into uh, Jerusalem, to smash a rebellion that Israel had started. Some radical zealots, they pulled together, they had enough strength, and they overcame the Antonio Fortress, the headquarters of Rome in Jerusalem. They took it over. So they had to send in more troops. But while this was happening in Jerusalem, and Vespasian was making his way um, to Jerusalem, Israel began to fight themselves behind the walls. So... There come the Romans coming, but inside you have these different sects among Israel, as told, told us by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that they were fighting behind the walls among themselves. Well, Vespasian gets promoted, and now it's 70 AD, and his son Titus is there to finish up the job. And he is ruthless with them. It's estimated that he killed a million Jews in this. So Jesus' words say, you're going to be leveled to the ground in your children. About a million, it's estimated about a million Jews died. Many were taken off into the Roman games and fed to the uh, uh, wild beasts and were used for sport with the uh, gladiators. Hundreds a day were crucified and tens of thousands were cut down in battle. So they, were, they, they died in many different ways. But Jesus makes reference to the stones. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. And the stones were impressive. There was a beautiful place that had been built. Some of these stones that are part of the retaining wall, where the western wall, where you see many of the Jews praying today, um, 40 feet long, 20 feet wide, 25 feet wide. I mean, they're just massive, massive stones. Um, solid limestone, and it, th- this is what built it up. And then you had the temple that was built. It was com- the, the temple proper was completed, uh, being built at this time. And, and so they, you know, one, we'll see in 21, they, they ask him, they said, man, this building's beautiful. But Jesus here is saying that not one stone's going to be left upon them. Now, Titus gave a command that the stones, that the temple should not be burned Because it was covered with, one estimate is about $100 million worth of gold. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold. And so it was just beautiful. But um, there was those that were among the troops that were not Italian. They were locals that were conscripted into the battle against the Jews. And you had this ethnic rivalry Uh, beyond just the putting down of the rebellion against Rome. And he says, don't burn the temple. Well, many of them from uh, Syria had such a hatred towards the Jews that Josephus actually says that the hatred of the troops towards the Jews was greater than the loyalty of the troops to Titus. And so they ignored it and they set it on fire. And um, as this thing burned, all the gold melted. And as it melted, it, it went into the... You know, the cracks of these stones. And so what they ended up doing is they began to topple the stones. So that picture that you see, that's part of the retaining wall of the Temple Mount. If you were to go in this direction, I don't know, I'm just going to say 50 yards or so, um, you would be right where the the Jews are praying at the Western Wall. So this is is the same wall. Um, And you can go and walk around this area. And these stones have fallen down from on top of the Temple Mount. Um, and why would that happen? They were collecting the gold. And so when Jesus says not one stone will be left up upon another, there's your evidence. There's your stones right there. They fell to the ground. Now the retaining wall, you see a bunch of stones there. This is the retaining wall. That's not the temple. That's just where the temple was built. Um, the next picture, um, and I realize it's kind of hard to see. It's a little dark. But this is um, a place, in, again, in Israel, that is called the burnt house and they found it and as they uh, un, you know dug it out there's all this charred layer of where the this this home in the city of jerusalem was burned during that time so what jesus said was going to happen to them in 33 a.d was literally fulfilled in 70 a.d um and a couple of more pictures and we'll begin to wrap it up here Uh, In Rome today, there is an arch that's known as the Arch of Titus, which celebrates his victory. And so you've got this kind of faraway view. But if you zoom in and you come in tighter on it, um, and you might be able to make out the menorah. Can you you guys see the menorah in that picture? And so Titus went in and he carried off many of these. You have in this, you have this, you have the table of showbread, you have some silver trumpets, and this relief, this arch of Titus, shows when he came in and he destroyed, and it stands as a memorial of his victory, but it also stands as a memorial of Jesus's fulfilled prophecy. It's a sad prophecy that's fulfilled, but nonetheless, again, we are reminded that the word of the Lord is true. It is certain. Many times in scripture, the Lord warns of not missing our opportunity of embracing him and his work that he desires to do in our life. Isaiah 55, verse 6, puts it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. And they had the king of kings, the creator of the universe in their midst. And they said, we don't want you. We've examined you for 33 years. We see what kind of man you are. And you know what? We're not interested in what you're offering. We're going to crucify you. But you know, there's a sense that applies to all of us. Now, many of you are believers here. You responded to the Lord when he spoke to you. Maybe some of you are not believers. Don't make the same mistake that these guys made of rejecting Jesus. When Jesus comes to you and begins to draw you to himself and he calls you out of your life of sin... You begin to get all afraid of what you're going to give up and what you're going to you know, miss out on and the friendships that are going to change and how your life is going to change. You have nothing to be afraid of because what the Lord is calling, to, calling you to is to a life of fulfillment. He's calling you to eternal life, to have life during life and to have life after life. You have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to not come to him and receive what he has to offer. But once we come to him as believers, don't we need to continue to hear him? Don't we need to continue to respond when he says, hey, come away. Now, we're not rejecting him as Messiah, as Savior, as Redeemer of our life. But let's be honest, we've all heard the voice of the Lord say, why don't you go spend a little time? And we've said, I'm busy. I've got to get these things taken care of. i got to, later. Now, it doesn't feel maybe like, It's the Lord. Maybe you feel like you're only having a conversation with yourself to meet the Lord. But hey, it's the Lord's working in your life that gives you those thoughts to meet with him. So we may look at the failure, and it was a colossal failure of the nation of Israel. But let's make certain that knowing who Jesus is and having embraced him, that we don't make the mistake of pushing him away. That we will seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him. While he is near. If the Lord prompts your heart to get away and to pray and to read or to fellowship, he's got something on his heart and mind. You don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss that. We need to come running and embrace the Lord. We'll wrap it up here with just a few verses. In uh, the end of Luke 19, verses 45 through 48, Jesus is going to then go into the temple here and he's going to cleanse it. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So there's a, picture of a, a model there in Jerusalem. And so right in the center here you have the temple proper. This is where the priests would go and they perform the functions of the altar. And, and then there's the holy place and then the holy of holies and that most that, that building, the satalis. But that large area around the, um, the precincts of the temple, this is the court of the Gentiles. And this is where the Gentiles were allowed to come. Only Certain Jews, and depending on who you were, and if you're a priest, a high priest, you could go all the way in once a year, but there you, could, you progressively you, you were, it was closed off. But the men could go in, the women could go to a part of the court of the women, court of the men would come and offer up the, the sacrifices at the altar, and the priests would then go in. But the, all the Gentiles had to stay on the outside. Where do you think they set up their tables and were ripping people off? That was the court of the Gentiles. So when people came from the nations around to see about the God of Israel, they walked in and they saw a bunch of thieves ripping people off. I wonder how many Gentiles went home thinking, not for me, I've got plenty of that back in my own little temple in my town where they rip people off. I don't need to travel this far and take on a new foreign god And how sad it was. And, of course, Jesus turns the tables. I mean, it was something like this. Uh, You would go and travel a long distance to come and worship. And as you came in, if you traveled a long distance, you weren't going to bring your sacrifice with you. You were going to buy it when you got there. So if you bought one and you came in and tried to present it to the priest, if you didn't buy it in the temple, it was going to be rejected as being unclean, not fit. So what they did say was, don't worry about that. Just buy one here that's already been pre-approved. So you would go to buy it, and they say, oh, no, no, we don't take your currency. You've got to go exchange it to the temple currency. So they would go, and they would make an exchange of their currency to the temple currency, and they would get a lousy exchange rate and get ripped off. Then they would come back having been ripped off with the exchange rate, and they would go and they pay for an overinflated price for an animal they could sacrifice to the Lord. Can you imagine how you are gnashing your teeth by the time you actually get to the place to worship God? I Man, you've been fighting, you're arguing, you're you know frustrated, and, and this is where the Lord comes in and He's like, "What are you guys doing?" And He began to drive them out. You know, He did this twice. In one of the accounts, we read that he sat down and the ropes that they had used to bring in all the animals and the doves and stuff, he sat down and he braided a whip. Now You can figure out what he did with it. We know he drove them out. I don't know if he just swung it in the air or he wrapped it around a few of the heads. I don't know. But they ran when he did it. And he makes this statement, my house is to be a house of prayer. People come here to pray, to worship, and call upon God. And you guys are ripping people off. And he sat daily teaching them, and yet they didn't want to hear him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so, what a tragedy. We've been following Jesus through this account of the Gospel of Luke, and we see his compassion, we see his miracles, we see his healing, we hear his teaching, his power over the demons. And they see this, and all they can think is, we got to kill this guy because, man, everybody's listening to him. Rather than saying, you know what we need to do? We need to follow him. As a matter of fact, in Bethany, where the story began tonight, Lazarus was there. Who's Lazarus? Oh, this is a guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And we read in, in John that many people began to believe because Lazarus had been risen from the dead. Do you know what the the Pharisees decided to do to Lazarus because many people were believing and they knew that he was dead and he came to life? Do you know what they decided to do, they wanted to do with him? Kill him. I mean, this is a, what kind of hard-hearted person do you have to be? He raised him from the dead and now they believe. Well, let's kill him. Wait a minute. Maybe this is the Messiah raising people from the dead. You don't see that every day. But no, All the way to the very end. Here we are in the last week of his life. And they're planning how to destroy him. And we know how they're going to destroy him. They're going to crucify him. So, amazing prophecy. Amazing failure of the nation. To not receive the Lord. And not to hear him. But I pray that each of us will make the most of our time with the Lord. We'll pray. We'll read. We'll sit quietly and meditate on the word of the Lord and the ways of the Lord so that we can meet with him, that his presence would be welcomed in my life, in my house. This is what is needed in his house, the house of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you make us think, and you give us a lot of information that's so detailed And it just confirms, Lord, that this book that we hold on our lap, it's not a bunch of generalizations about some events that may happen. You are incredibly specific. And, Lord, it builds our faith to trust your word about how to live our life, how to to follow you. And I pray you would build our faith tonight. But Lord, as the takeaway lesson for us, may we learn to celebrate your presence and to rejoice over you riding into our life and never to take you for granted and certainly to never plot how to silence you in our life. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy towards us. In the name of Jesus, amen.